Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, good friends. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving with your friends and family. And now, uh, since all of our regular roundtable guests are off celebrating the long Thanksgiving holiday with their own loved ones, we bring you a very different kind of podcast today. Very different and very special because it takes us away from all of the contentious politics of the day and into the fascinating world of shipwrecks. Yes, shipwrecks. The most famous shipwreck of all, of course, remains the Titanic. Remarkable because it was the maiden voyage of what had been billed as the unsinkable new ocean liner. But the Titanic's only one of thousands and thousands of shipwrecks, many of them also famous, and hundreds of which, despite new construction materials and new technology, still happen every year which raises all kinds of questions about whether they can be salvaged, whether survivors or their families of victims are compensated, and who pays for any environmental damage. It's all the subject of a fascinating new book called Sinkable, the latest book from best-selling author Daniel Stone. Daniel Stone, good to talk to you, and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. What a joy to be with you. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, All right, your new book, sinkable obsession the deep sea and the shipwreck of the titanic i i loved it i learned a lot from it uh i was so impressed with your encyclopedic knowledge of shipwrecks uh, throughout history around the world uh, especially revolving around the titanic of course so congratulations oh thanks but i have to say so i finished the book and then the next day i pick up the new york times and there's an article in it about people today who pay $250,000 to go down in a submersible 2.4 miles to get a good look up close of the wreck of the Titanic. Daniel, this happened 110 years ago. Why the fascination still with the Titanic? This, this was the exact question that drove the book and most of my research trying to figure out why this one shipwreck among millions of shipwrecks in the world, there are about 3 million, according to UNESCO, uh, captured this cultural fame and sits at this place as one of not just the most famous shipwrecks, but one of the most famous celebrities of anything in the world. I mean, yeah, it's it's amazing. It is. The Titanic is one of the most popular Google search terms every day worldwide without <laughs> without flagging ever um, and so it's it's bigger than the Beatles it's bigger you know it's I'd like to say it's kind of got an economy to itself uh, like trying to imagine the economy of the color blue I mean it's it's limitless in its tentacles so why well I mean what were the factors you think that that contribute to this iconic you know 
wreck on the bottom of the sea. There, there is a reason, and I, I finally found it, which is, um, and let me just take you a meandering way, which is to say there's very little about the Titanic that's unique, right? Um, a ship that is big or was big in its day, there were many ships built bigger and bigger throughout the 19th and 20th century. Ships that carried rich people were very common. Ships that hit icebergs were also so common in the 1880s and 1890s that then in the Titanic's era, ships started to hit fewer icebergs and it was considered a success. And so the only factor that's really different about the Titanic that secured its place in the cultural zeitgeist for more than a century is kind of a weird quirk of math, of numbers, mm. that about 1,500 people died, but 700 right. people lived. And those 700 were mostly young women and children who lived another 50, 60, 70 years telling and retelling the story of that night. And that storytelling kept the Titanic alive Wow. Long enough yeah. for it to coincide with major advances in storytelling. Uh, you know, the advent of film, color film, mm -hmm. uh, talking film uh, in the 30s and you know, 20s, 30s, and 40s. Eventually, book distribution that made it possible to distribute books wider to more people. Uh, and of course, you know, music and musical theater. Eventually, these high production films like, like A Night to Remember in the 50s and James Cameron's movie Titanic in the 90s, uh, this, this was storytelling rooted in that survival rate, that there were 700 people's stories to work with. So certainly the movie movies, right? Night to Remember, as you point out, and Titanic, and the book, Waterlord's book, A Night to Remember. Sure. All of that kept the, the story uh, alive as well. But uh, today, it, I, I, I want to make sure, it was the largest ship at the time, right? And it was his maiden voyage. That also contributed, didn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was the largest ship and for a, for a small period of time, and then there were larger <laughs> ones. Compared right. to today, I mean, the Titanic would be one of the runs of, of the cruise industry. It's, it's a tiny ship. Um, but yeah, it was its maiden voyage. So it's got this kind of cultural story lore to it. But a lot of wrecks, if you consider that the Titanic sank, if everyone on board had died... It would have been an enormous story for mm -hmm. a, a few uh, weeks, maybe a month yeah. or two, and it would have faded. Right. And if everyone had survived, there'd be no story or there'd be no tragedy to it, you know? So the fact that it was right in the middle with, with death and survival, both in large number, is really unique among ships. It was finally discovered. So it sank in 1912, right. April 15, 1912, discovered in 1985, right. 73 years later. Why did it take so long? Uh, it took long because uh, it was very deep, two and a half miles deep. Uh, and we didn't have the technology until almost the 70s to look that deep. Um, uh -huh. we, we, we can't see underwater. It's, it's very difficult to make a map of the ocean floor because the waves that are sent down to make maps don't work in water. So the only way to see underwater is to hear with sonar, and you effectively have to drag a sonar rig behind a ship on this long cable, several miles long, and just back and forth, back and forth. And in the North Atlantic, which is not only really deep, where it gets really dark, right, the deeper you get, uh -huh. but also it has some of the worst weather on the planet. So, you know, it's really uh -huh. rocky for a ship on the surface to do that transect mapping, and so we didn't have the technology until, like I said, the 70s. And the guy who found it, Bob Ballard in 85, mm -hmm. as you said, 
only found it because he had the benefit of government-sponsored technology that was created to find some old nuclear submarines that were also at the bottom of the North Atlantic. And the Navy basically told Ballard, uh, we want you to go use our technology and find these two submarines. And if you have extra time after, you can use the remaining days to search for the Titanic. And so he had 12 days to find the Titanic, and I think he found it on day nine. Wow. Uh, do you do you believe the Titanic will ever be raised from its uh, birth at the bottom of the sea? No, no, no. It, it's impossible. Why? I, Why? I ran this by a few a few engineers. You know, just how would you do it? And one of them said to me, "It would be like trying to raise the twin towers after they fell. I mean, there's no there's no structure to it. It's it's mostly just rubble that's been mm-hmm. kind of collapsing on itself over the past century." Um, but this question has kind of fantasized a lot of people for more than a century. And people who I chronicle in my book who really have this grand vision of how they're going to do it. And, you know, they're going to use electromagnets. They want to use pontoons or syntactic foam or ping pong balls or wacky stuff. (laughs) But a lot of them got a lot of publicity. I mean, written up in thousands of newspapers worldwide because that idea of raising it is mm-hmm. really enticing. I mean, it's 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 a fun thought experiment. Uh, you certainly came across a cast of characters uh, in writing your book, which I, which I do want to ask you about. But before we do, aren't there other wrecks out there today where we could learn a lot more from them than we can from the Titanic? Or there are more, maybe get more valuables out of them than the Titanic? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are, like I said, there are 3 million wrecks on Earth. Um, The Titanic is not that unique among any of them. But yeah, there are a lot of wrecks that have a lot more kind of clues about the past. And there's three main reasons people go searching for wrecks. There's scientists who are interested in the archaeology. And where they go is the Black Sea, because the Black Sea has the Mm. best preserved conditions the best conditions for the best preserved wrecks, deep water, low salt. So you could find old Greek and Roman era wrecks in the Black Sea. Then there's people who go for cultural wrecks like the Titanic or you know the Lusitania, the Endurance that was found in Antarctica right. earlier this year. And then there's the treasure hunters. They're the third class. Uh-huh, right. And they want to go, they don't really care about the ship. They want to know how much gold or silver or diamonds or teak or indigo or any of these kind of old old valuable things. Uh, and they they get big collections of investors and millions of dollars to go perform these kind of deep sea excavations. Um, so all of them are worth finding for their own reason. But yeah, the Titanic is, is kind of like the Kim Kardashian of Rex. It's famous because it's famous and people want to be near it because it's famous. Who does it belong to? <laughs> this, I this mean, is, can anybody just go down there and grab anything they want? I mean, is there any ownership? Yeah. Well, this is the question that powers a lot of the characters in my book that for a long time, no one knew who owned it, that the the people who paid out the insurance claim on the wreck on after the Titanic sank, Lloyd's of London, they washed their hands with it. They didn't want anything to do with it. How a about lot the, of, the, whoever made it? The, yeah. Oh, the, the White Star Line, once they got their insurance money from it, they didn't own it anymore either. <laughs> and so, and then, you know, the families of the victims, do they own it? They didn't want anything to do with it. So the main character in my book, a guy named Doug Woolley, claimed that 
it was his and and he just he just claimed it and and he was so successful in his claim that he was written up again all over the world in these newspapers as the guy who owned the Titanic today it's a question that's gotten caught up in a lot of kind of court cases all over the world the fact that it was a british made ship but it sank in international waters but it was carrying a lot of americans and people from other countries you know, has has given it this kind of squabble among the world's courts. But most courts have cited that no one really owns it. And it's a historic site that should not be disturbed. Have questions been raised about the construction of the ship? I mean, all the and I watched a few videos after reading your book, including this one. Uh, I forget the name of the company that takes these people down in this submersible. That's it. But um I mean, it glanced off the iceberg, right? It didn't hit it head on. Right. It was on its its starboard side, the right side of the ship. Yeah. And I mean, weren't there questions about why the ship wouldn't have been built stronger? To absolutely, this was a huge a huge focus of the two major investigations that were done in the year uh-huh. after it sank. One in the U.S. by the Senate, and one in uh, England by the British Board of Trade. And they looked at every single document, every single account of every survivor. And yeah, they they noticed that the center of the ship, right in the middle, was built with really high quality steel. Um, but the the bow and the stern, the ends of the ship, were built with slightly lower quality steel because hmm. they figured, you know, the center is where the stress is when waves hit it or whatnot. And so had it been built with higher quality steel you know, there's there's a belief that it might not have punctured the hull, that it might not have filled with water and sank. But again, these are like the the looping conspiracies, the mysteries, the cultural swirl of this wreck that will never be decided. They'll, there's never a conclusion. They're just debate points that that people debate online every day, everywhere in the world, you know, at, forever, really. Well, no doubt in my mind that were this that were the that accident that wreck whatever to happen today with any ocean liner every single family who had anybody on board and lost their lives would have sued the ship the the ship liner oh right? sure uh did that happen back in 1912 yeah, there were lawsuits, there were insurance claims, and basically there was, you know, kind of major squabbles in the media over who deserved what and what kind of money. Interestingly, a lot of this centered on the behavior of the passengers. So, you know, a lot of the men went down with the ship. Mm-hmm. There were some men who got seats on lifeboats and they had to fight back in the media as to why they survived. You know, all these other guys died. What are you doing here in New York after? And so these squabbles, these legal squabbles about who is entitled to what kind of insurance money, exactly how big the total claim is, how it's divvied up. This was, I mean, you could imagine something like that happening now. It happened in those days. And that's right. also what kept the story so alive and so in the media for so long. Uh, I remember one story you tell in the book about uh, uh, one of the survivors, a man, who was on deck and he sees the lifeboat is about to go down and there are empty seats in the lifeboat. Right. <laughs> and so he just jumps in and there were no women and children around. Right. So right. he just jumped in. Yeah. And for the rest of his life, I, I don't remember his name, but he had to battle back these accusations of, of cowardice. Like yeah. how dare you, you know, 
And you're right. The circumstances were totally reasonable. But uh, the fact that the ship stayed in, in the media for so long kept just inconsistencies like that, uh, you know, just eye popping and, and culturally relevant much longer than they would have been on almost any other wreck. So you mentioned um, some of the characters who've been obsessed, and I think that's the right word, obsessed with the Titanic, uh, among whom Doug Woolley seems to be the greatest character. And you actually went to London uh, to see him. Uh, did he convince you that he's the <laughs> owner of the Titanic and <laughs> Doug has Woolley. all rights to it? Well, Doug Woolley's a fascinating character, maybe the most fascinating person I've ever covered. Um, I had read for for months, I had been reading about Doug Woolley and, and the sense that he owned the wreck. And I couldn't find any evidence of him owning the wreck. But I kept seeing that he was labeled the man who owned the Titanic as, as a wreck. <laughs> and yeah, so I wanted to find him, but all mentions of him kind of ended in the 1990s. And so I figured he he was deceased. I mean, most of his work was in the 50s and 60s. And then I found kind of a, a journalistic clue that led me to another clue that led me texting with a guy and then another guy. And eventually <laughs> I, I find Doug while he's alive. And, uh, and I, I liken it in the book to basically trying to arrange an interview with the Pope, right? It was like so difficult through so many layers of, of gatekeepers. I finally get to him and he says, I want you to come to London. I want to talk to you. And this is a center character of my book. So I fly to London about a week before COVID starts, March of 2020. And I sit with Doug Woolley in his apartment. That is, I would say to call him a hoarder might be generous because he has <laughs> decades worth of shipwreck memorabilia, every inch of his apartment. And I'm asking him, you know, basically that same question. Do you have any evidence that you own this wreck or, or ever did own this wreck? And he says, yeah, it's all in the media. It's all in my clip file of newspaper articles. And I realized that he, you know, very similar to, you know, a, a character almost like Donald Trump, his main quality was that he could, <laughs> he could generate news coverage out of nothing, and then he yeah. could leverage it into more news coverage and then use the whole body of news coverage to rationalize some wacky claim he made and keep pushing it. It was, it was a lie. But also Doug Woolley really believed it. And, and so he just kept pushing it and continues to push it to this day. Is there any rule against, well, let me ask it this way. Can anybody who has the technology uh, go down and just, you know, pick up some sal salvage pieces from the Titanic? You know, pick up a, a, a chair or a table or, uh, you know, a s silverware or something like that? Right. Good question. And, and the caveat that you put in there is, to, can anyone with the technology? Most yeah. people don't have the technology. Right. In fact, the fact but is that it, mm -hmm. it, it is, is an open, open season. It's an open rec site, but it is governed by several different sets of laws, uh, some domestic U.S. laws, some international laws that are have been litigated. Most of the artifacts have been picked up. And a lot of them, the biggest collection is owned by a company in Atlanta that basically provides them for uh, traveling exhibits, right? You could see oh, Titanic, mm -hmm. silverware, cutlery, or teacups, picture frames, you know, furniture cushions, whatnot in a museum. A lot of field trip students go see these in Atlanta, which again, fuels the next generation of, of Titanic course, fever. Right? 
but most of the the easy stuff to pick up is gone. What's interesting is there's a lot of trash around there, um, mm. more trash than ever were artifacts, because you know for a submarine to go down, usually they need ballast. So they'll take these heavy chains, and then when they get down, they'll drop the chains so they could go back up. Uh, there are right. tours and cruises that that go to the site where it sank on the service. And, you know, people will throw over padlocks, you know, like those lovers oh, padlock yeah. things. So there's, you know, thousands of those down there. It's it's kind of a trash dump site and grave site and cultural site all at once. So if you could, yeah. if you could have the, you know, if you did have the quarter million to go down and see it, uh, yeah, you'd see kind of a crumbling pile of rubble. That's That's basically what you'd see. Now, your book, Sinkable, again, is not just about the Titanic. You talk about uh, shipwrecks worldwide uh, throughout history. Uh, enough about the Titanic. Let's take a quick break and then come back and talk about some of the other famous uh, shipwrecks and what the situation uh, is today with our guest, Daniel Stone. And today's podcast brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A. Good members of LIUNA, over half a million strong. They're the backbone of the labor labor unions in this country, uh, doing construction work, uh, building new schools, roads and highways, water and sewer system treatment plants. Uh, in the energy field, building solar panels and wind turbines and old-fashioned pipelines, and in the public sector, some 70,000 members of the Laborers' Union, supporting working families, providing good jobs and good benefits for working families in America. We salute the members of LIUNA and their president, President Terry O'Sullivan. Thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're back on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, today, uh, we're not talking uh, political shipwrecks like Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. We're talking <laughs> real shipwrecks uh, uh, as uh, detailed uh, with great uh, sense of humor and great um, research by Daniel Stone in his new book, Sinkable, Obsession, the Deep Sea, and the Shipwreck of the Titanic. After the Titanic, you mentioned a couple of them earlier, Daniel. What are the... Uh, in your mind, the two or three most famous shipwrecks? Uh, easily the Lusitania and the Endurance. Mm -hmm. um, the the Bounty, the famous kind of uh, oh, ship right. of Captain Bly, you know, Mutiny on the Bounty. We have the Maine, right? Remember the Maine. Uh, there are wrecks of other countries that are culturally relevant that many of us in the U.S. have never heard of. There's a ship in Australia called the Warata that is often considered Australia's Titanic. Very similar story. Um, so though, you know, there, there are, those are the 1% of shipwrecks that are the ones that are famous that we've heard about, but there are hundreds Have they of all been located. Not all of them. No, the Warata is still missing. Uh, there's a famous, a British one called the, uh, SS Arctic that's still missing that people are trying to find. 
The most valuable shipwreck of all time that was ever found is a ship called the Atosha, a Spanish ship that sank near Florida in uh, the 16th century. But interestingly, there's an even more valuable wreck um, called the Flor de la Mar. Uh, that was a Portuguese merchant ship that sank around Indonesia around the same era, believed to be carrying about a billion and a half to $2 billion in gold. No one's found that one yet either. Um, so there are a lot of valuable shipwrecks still waiting to be found. The question is the technology. Can, do you have the technology? Do you have the time? Do you have the investors who are willing to bet that you can find it and maybe lose their money if you don't? Uh, and the object is to not only recover what valuables might be there, but to raise these ships and put them back into service. Has that ever happened? Yeah, it, it has happened a couple times. Uh, there's a ship called the uh, Great Britain that um, that sank. That, that was a kind of a British ship that sailed for about 100 years, and it sank uh, about 80 years ago. And it was eventually towed, it was eventually raised and towed back to its port and is now the most popular tourist site in Bristol, England. Um, hmm. A similar wreck called the Vasa, uh, V-A-S-A, was a, spe a Swedish uh, battleship that uh, made it a full 1,000 meters before it sank on its maiden <laughs> voyage um, in, in harbor and was raised about 400 years later and is now Sweden's most popular tourist destination, seeing the Vasa. So these ships are given second life. The question really is, you know, what condition are they in? Can they be salvaged easily? And for a ship like the Titanic, that's so deep, two and a half miles in extremely dark, cold, high pressure environment. The question was always no. The answer was no. You know, it can't mm -hmm. be raised. The condition is so poor. And of course, once you get these ships above water, they start to rust way faster than they ever were below water. So their right. breakdown is accelerated. You used the uh, number before, 3 million shipwrecks? Yeah, that's an estimate from UNESCO that, that studied... Are, that are out there, still down there? Oh, yeah. And and more every year. I mean, we lose fewer ships now than we did you know, 200 years ago when ships were the only way to really get anywhere. Uh, but there, if you consider that that's this is how humans traveled around the world for thousands of years, the only way they, they crossed oceans. Uh, yeah, 3 million wrecks is the UNESCO estimate. And they admit that that's mostly a guess that the number is probably a lot higher. It could be as high as 20 to 30 million when you, you know, consider every canoe, kayak, pontoon, speedboat oh, yeah, right. that's, ever, that's ever sunk. So a growing number. Is there any such thing as an unsinkable ship? <laughs> there is. <laughs> I found one. Um, what? There's a company in Boston, um, I, I forget the name, uh, that makes and, and markets its unsinkable uh, hulls. And basically, it's, it's a ship that's kind of filled with a foam so that even if it breaks in half and they show in their marketing how the ship can break in half, it'll still keep floating. So, but every other ship, I mean, any cruise ship you've been on or, you know, any, any pontoon you've taken out on the lake or a speedboat... I mean, they work on the basic principle of buoyancy, right? That they float because they're lighter than the, the weight of the water they displace, right? That's the basic scientific principle. And as soon as you change the equation, as soon as they become heavier than the water they're displacing, 
either by taking on water or you know they they're loaded too heavy or a storm hits them in a in a funny way or in the Bermuda Triangle there's an idea that there's methane vents that come up from the seafloor bubbling methane and that changes the weight of the water and so the water becomes lighter and the ship becomes heavier and a ship can sink very suddenly that's one of the theories of the Bermuda Triangle Oh yeah Oh yeah just out of out of high quality steel um and you know things that are welded together right you couldn't weld more than 100 years ago so ships are built better I will say ships are built a lot bigger and when it comes to container ships they're oh. loaded a lot heavier and so it's very dangerous to to operate a container ship with maybe dozens of thousands of containers on board uh, many of those, you know, the weight and ballast equation is very sensitive and containers routinely fall off of ships. And a lot of those ships yep. sink because of that. You mentioned um, the three million. Um, so, and you mentioned the Bermuda Triangle. Is there any, uh, are these, they kind of evenly spread under the sea or, or are there, is there any like major um, ship graveyard yeah. right, where, where more wrecks happen? I, I actually have a heat map, I call it, of wrecks that show where ah. most of them are. And no, they're not evenly distributed. They're very highly concentrated in places you would historically expect along major shipping routes. Most of them are in the Northern Hemisphere because that's where most people travel. Uh, a lot, the vast majority are around Europe and especially England, which for hundreds of years dominated global shipping and shipping, you know, naval warfare. Uh, was a major hallmark of the British Empire. That's how it reached all of its all of its colonies. Um, World War One, a lot of those wrecks are in the Atlantic. World War Two, most of them are in the Pacific, but there are in the Atlantic also. So if you can imagine a map of the entire world, you have these kind of bright bright heat spots uh, showing dense concentrations of wrecks around coastlines, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, and most especially around Europe and North America. So living in Northern California, um, around the Point Reyes National Seashore, uh, there were many wrecks there on the on the rocks. That's why they put the lighthouse at the end of the uh, Point Reyes. And the the word was, and there are many stories at that time when these ships would run against the rocks that it was um, anybody could go and grab anything they wanted off the ship. Basically, right? It was uh, <laughs> now. So if a ship sinks today. Who has the rights to it again, or can anybody just go and you know collect whatever they can get? Great question, and I I delved pretty deep into this exact legal question because ships operate in this weird legal framework, right? They they're built in one country, they're registered in another, maybe Jamaica, they're sailed to a third country carrying cargo from other countries and people from even other countries. So there's. Yeah. If a ship sinks in open water, deep water, international waters, there's often that question. And it comes down to what was it carrying and how valuable was it? Most ships don't carry, you know, millions of dollars of gold. That's an old, an old thing. So now, usually the answer is nobody wants it, you know? It, hmm. And if it sinks in shallow water, it becomes a liability because it could be blocking other ships or it could be leaking oil or any lubricants, you know, within the engine. 
And so mm. there are these these legal battles, not over who gets it, but who's responsible for it. And that's the vast majority of of wrecks that go down around countries' coastlines. And are there cases, I forget now in the book whether you mentioned, of people who scuttle the ships deliberately? Um... Yeah, there are scuttling stories, you know, during war, especially World War One, trying uh. to scuttle your boat so the enemy wouldn't, you know, overtake you and, you know, get to keep your boats. But now there are professional salvage and scuttling companies that are basically hired by a state or a local government or a nonprofit agency that wants to sink an old ship to make a new coral reef. And mm. they'll hire these companies to basically take a ship out of the water, clean it of all of its its you know contaminants and its its toxins. They'll smooth down the edges so that a diver maybe can uh -huh. swim through yeah. it. And they'll take it out to a, a predetermined place and they'll, you know, open the doors and they'll they they sink it in a very deliberate way, but they all say they have to sink it very quickly because if you want a ship to go down in exactly one way, in exactly yeah. one spot, it's very difficult because of the current and the weather and the wind. And so it's it's very difficult work. Everyone I spoke to who did that work sounded tired very tired. <laughs> well, I, I must say, again, I read so much, so many political books. I happen to come across Sinkable, uh, reading a review of it, and I'm so glad I did because, uh, again, I learned a lot, and it's just a fascinating, fascinating story. Uh, unbelievable how many shipwrecks there yeah. are, and unbelievable that we are still so fascinated uh, by the Titanic, I, I must say, though, no matter how fascinated I am, I'm not going to spend $250,000 <laughs> to go down and take a closer look. Uh, uh, I'll depend on the, I'll be satisfied with the video out there. Right? I agree. I can't even be on a canoe without getting seasick. So I'm not going down there <laughs> anytime soon. Daniel Stone, the book is Sinkable Obsession, the Deep Sea and the Shipwreck of the Titanic. And there'll be a link to buy the book, which I totally encourage you to do uh, on the in the episode notes of today's podcast. Daniel Stone, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Bill. And that's a wrap for today's podcast with Daniel Stone. Again, the name of the book is Sinkable, a fascinating book. And there's a link in the episode notes to today's podcast to get your copy of Sinkable. I think you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Well, now, folks, have a great weekend. We'll be back on Tuesday. Uh, talking to another wonderful author, a legendary historian, Adam Hochschild, and his latest book called American Midnight. I got to tell you, this is the story of America between the years of 1917 and 1921, and you will not believe uh, how democracy fell apart in those four years. The worst side of America maybe we've ever seen in terms of race riots and rounding up of dissenters and censorship, uh, anti-Semitism, pure outright racism, horrible stuff, all under the so-called leadership of President Woodrow Wilson. Adam Hochschild lays it out in American Midnight, and he'll tell us all about it in our next podcast next Tuesday. So have a great weekend. Come back and see us Tuesday on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. <laughs>